episode 29 where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. My name is Stephanie and I'm here with my co-hosts Melody and April. Let's get started ladies. Um, Stephanie, Stephanie, Stephanie is today the day that Jane Club comes on the pod. Today is the day. I'm so excited. Me too. Um, April, what's going on with you? Before we get into like my girl fandom of Jane Club. Yeah. I want to respond with you, April. Um, I just had a lot of junk to get done this weekend, I guess. But um, I have been putting myself to bed early every night. And then I wake up every day and I'm like, I can actually do this. Mm-hmm. The morning's like, not like, I don't like getting out of bed. But like that morning time is my most productive time. Mm-hmm. So I had to help my mother-in-law out today. Well, I'm getting ready for bed. <laughs> Sounds like you've been momming so hard. It's it's yeah. nine o'clock, yeah. everyone. We're recording this at nine o'clock, and April is already falling asleep. <laughs> Listen, I live a rock star life that starts at six in the morning. <laughs> True story. Mm-hmm. So, Stephanie, I know you're a big fan of Jane. Um, before we ever come on. Why are you a big fan of Jane? Well, Jane's a dear friend of mine. And um, I, uh, Jane uh, cares for me for exactly who I am and not uh, what she wants me to be or anything else. And um, I really appreciate that we can support each other and encourage each other, um, both as activists and mothers and just women on this earth. And um, She's just really kind and she's kind to everyone, but she's kind to me and I appreciate that. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing and I was thinking past, you know, I know there's a lot of um, rhetoric. She is a national leader. She's published a book. She's the head of the Nebraska State Party. She's the head of Bold Nebraska, which has stopped the Keystone Pipeline again and again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um And I feel like even on the left, the attacks of her are incredibly vicious. And I've worked with her on all kinds of initiatives, big and small. And I've just never, I've never seen it. I've never seen the viciousness. And um, I would argue that there is a very strong sense of misogyny about her. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to bring her out to hear and let other people hear like the version of her that I see on a very regular basis. Mm So um, I think it'll be a great interview and I hope people um, learn about that. And I hope people, when they hear about women in power and they hear negative things about women in power, 
ask for concrete examples of why mm -hmm. people think that. Ask if the, re the reasoning is makes sense. I mean, I heard things about, you know, there's all this brouhaha in Omaha about, you know, this, that, or the other. Um, and even I'll, I'll hear, well, Jane made this happen. I'm like, she doesn't have that kind of authority in her position. <laughs> what you're saying isn't logical to me. Right. And like her personal feelings aside, maybe, maybe, you know, inside her heart, but you, you don't talk to her. So I'm not sure how you know what she's thinking. Um, so, so I would just, you know, people who have heard bad things or mean things, I would challenge you to think through your own internalized misogyny, which mm -hmm. I have it. You have it, Stephanie, you have it, April. We all have it. We've, we grow up in a misogynistic culture. Um, but I would challenge everyone to really listen to Jane and, and just form your own opinion of this Nebraska leader who I think has done really incredible work um, doing things that were necessary and boring, but also doing things that were cool and exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important that we always remember that in the, the type of society that we've all raised in and that we're all working so hard to push back on that, um, women who get things done and push the envelope are typically demonized. And um, I know I've experienced it, Melody. Definitely, definitely. Right? Um, and so over the last five or six years, I've really had to uh, look at my opinions of other women around me and other mothers around me um, and what they're doing and uh, why my reaction or someone else's reaction might be there. and. Um, I know for unequivocally that Jane is in this for the right reasons, uh, to do good things for Nebraska. And it has been so awesome, uh, to watch her work over the last five years. Well, I will say I have found, <laughs> you know, I work, um, on Nebraskans against gun violence. And I think sometimes I meet people who have heard my reputation, <laughs> uh, before they've actually met me and have found it surprising but I'm actually a very nice and pleasant person <laughs> in real life. And in fact, reasonable. I'm a reasonable person to talk to. Um, even with um, my political enemies have found me to be reasonable to talk to. Uh, so, you know, I, yeah, we definitely have all felt that. Okay. Well, Stephanie, bring her in. I'm so excited today with us, we have Jane Klebb. Jane's an experienced grassroots organizer, manager, political strategist, nonprofit entrepreneur. She's also a fantastic mother and friend. She was recently profiled by PBS in a film called Blue Wind on Red Prairie. Jane's currently the chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party and founder of the grassroots group, Bold Nebraska. Jane, welcome, We're so excited to have you. I am very excited to be with the ladies of this pod. Very excited. I just want to say, Jane, I am very happy that you're here and I'm exhausted uh, listening to your bio. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just totally exhausted. <laughs> I, uh, ever since I was a little kid, my family can attest that I never stopped moving. Like, you know, mm -hmm. little, little, or now I'm always constantly doing something, can't stop. It's in my nature. Uh, it's just who I am. So there you go. Well, 
let's talk about who you are. So you're little, you can't stop moving. What does that look like? Like who is little Jane growing up? Where did you grow up? Like, yeah. tell us, give us that story. Who are you? So, Where'd you come from? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in Miami, uh, but we only lived in Miami for a couple of years. So I really grew up in Plantation, Florida, which is essentially a suburb of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, So I definitely grew up around the beach and the ocean air and all that good stuff. My family uh, were very devout Catholics at St. Maurice. And so every Sunday we would go to church. We would hang out on their big deck after church, play in the trees, eat donuts uh, while our families chit-chatted. My grandmother uh, was a huge influence in my life. I was named after her. Um, She was one of the first women to open up a Burger King restaurant in Florida, and my dad worked there as well. So my entire childhood was kind of hanging out in Burger King on the weekends, helping my dad prep all of the food uh, for that week. I think back then, you really did have to cut the onions and tomatoes. I'm sure now they probably come cut. I I don't know that for sure. Um, So, you know, but uh, to like... I guess put an exclamation point on how I used to always be in constant motion is we would play a lot of hide and go seek as kids and block hide and go seek. And, you know, just playing the game wasn't sufficient for me. I created little membership cards and kind of put people (laughs) in teams, Um, you know, so you were like on the butterfly team or the cat team. uh, And I kept them in a little index card uh, box. So that's, that was who I was. uh, Even then I was constantly organizing. That matches that bio. My mom is from Fort Lauderdale. She went to Piper High School. Ah, I went to Plantation High. Uh, Piper was a rival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I went to Catholic school uh, first, gate, first grade through my freshman year of high school, but then I went to Plantation High School public school. Mm. Yeah, my mom went to Piper High and her mom was the guidance counselor. Ooh. Yeah, my grandmother still lives in Palatka. Fun fact. My whole family still down in Florida. My brother works for Disney World. Uh, you know, if you grew up in Florida, you are obsessed and love Disney. Um, so I am no different. I love Disney just as much. And yeah, so he lived is living his childhood dream of working there. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> awesome. So then what took you from a beach Shangri-La to <laughs> Nebraska? A state, yeah, a state with coasts on all sides versus a state with no coasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, here we are. Um, so I really spent the until I was about 24 in Florida. I went to school at Stetson University, go Hatters. Uh, and then my first job was actually running an AmeriCorps program in Tallahassee, Florida, and a kind of 100% African-American, 100% free and reduced lunch school, was there for about five years, Uh, was an amazing program, absolutely changed the way that I look at public education and poverty and the engagement of parents and grandparents in our kids' education. Um, So the first time I left Florida was when I went to work for a national AmeriCorps program in Philadelphia. And that's where I met Cora's dad. And uh, we spent a lot of time in Philly. And I then went to and go Cora to work. Cora is one of your children. Cora right? is one of my kids. Yep. Yep. I'll so Brian, I have three. Cora was a love child. We and Brian and I were not married. <laughs> 
but uh, lovingly was born into this world, uh, into a very kind of punk rock, lots of coffee, lots of politics house. Um, and when I, I essentially started to realize when I worked for AmeriCorps that a lot of the kids that we were working with in the school system were struggling with a lot of mental health issues. And I decided that I wanted to go back to graduate school because I had struggled with an eating disorder that definitely almost you know, wiped out my entire life. It was an intense recovery of almost eight years. And so I knew that activism helped me recover. And that was one of the tools that I used to fully recover. And of course, with all the other treatment that I did with professionals and nutritionists and all that good stuff. Um, so I decided to go back to grad school. And so I uh, got accepted into American University. So Brian and I packed up little Cora and went to DC for graduate school. And I kind of carved out this, my own program. Um, and it was all about how you use activism as a tool for recovery. So that was at American University. And I guess fast forward, um, I then became the executive director of the Young Democrats of America because I was really pushing a lot of Democratic donors at the time who did not care at all about young voters to invest in uh, the youth vote. And so I spent a lot of time at YDA and that's how I met Scott. So Scott was a young candidate in 2006 uh, in Nebraska and people wanted him to speak at one of our events. And I told them absolutely not because he's from Nebraska, which probably meant that he was a Republican who couldn't get through the crowded primary. And so he was just running on the Democratic ballot. Um, but the smart rural caucus chair of YDA sent his bio and his headshot. And I opened up that and was smitten and you know, the rest is history. <laughs> And so now you're in Nebraska and you live, where do you live? So I live in Hastings, home of Kool-Aid, not to be confused with Flavor-Aid. Uh, you know, the whole, you know, drinking the drink was not Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. It was the knockoff of. Uh, so we're very proud of Hastings and Kool-Aid. We have Kool-Aid days. You can come drink it a mug for two bucks and drink Kool-Aid all day long. Um, we also, you know, have a home of Eileen's cookies in case you're a fan of those uh, that you can also thank Hastings. So we live there with our three girls. Well, Cora's off in college now in Chicago, but Maya's our middle kid. She's a seventh grader and little Willa is in fourth grade. Um, I have a very funny Hastings story. <laughs> Bring it. When my husband and I first started dating, I said, let's go to the Kool-Aid Festival. It's a Nebraska thing. It comes from Hastings. They do this funky little small town festival every year. Like, let's go. And he goes, well, let's look it up online. Let's kind of see the schedule of events. And I said, no. If we look, we might see something that discourages us from going. Let's get in the car and just go. And so it was Sunday. And it turns out all the things are on Saturday. We missed all the things. Uh, the whole town is basically shut down except the museum. But we did drink as much Kool-Aid as we wanted, like little plastic Kool-Aid cups. Yeah. Um, and we went to the Kool-Aid Museum. And it was him rolling his eyes pretty, pretty much the whole day and me going like, isn't this amazing? I'm so glad we drove all this way. <laughs> Trying to, you know. Bring it up a little. Yeah. Bring up the mood. And so that is something that we still talk about when, and he will say, 
as an example of why we need to do a little more research and I will respond, no, this is why you just have to go with it sometimes because mm-hmm. we wouldn't have gone if yeah. we, knew we had missed all the stuff. Sometimes you just got to get in the car and just see what happens. And yeah. now you have a story and lots of life lessons. So, and hopefully you still have your Kool-Aid mugs. We do. <laughs> there you go. Kool-Aid to my children in those mugs. Amen to that. April, what's on your mind? What do you want to ask, Um, Jane? Well, um, I think we came up with a few questions um, that we were thinking of. And uh, I was wondering, how is the Democratic Party in Nebraska organized? Yeah. Um, I think the parties can be hard for outsiders to understand sometimes. Yeah, so I do think that political parties seem very elusive to people and that things, I think the perception is that they like happen behind closed doors with, you know, cigars and all sorts of nonsense. But really the party is anybody who wants to be part of the party. I mean, the beautiful thing about the party, I try to sometimes give the analogy of kind of a school district that, you know, the the party is really the infrastructure, right? We are the schools, we are the uh, kind of superintendent's office, but we're not the teachers. And you often have kind of rock star teachers, right? Teachers of the year that kind of always break out. Maybe this cycle, you know, people are looking at Jen Day and Tim Royers and all these other really like rock star state legislative candidates. Um, So we don't, we're not the ones in the classroom teaching, right? So we're not the ones inside campaigns running campaigns, but we provide kind of the infrastructure for all Democrats, whether that's Democratic activists or whether that's Democratic candidates. So there's party resources that we provide. Obviously our brand is a significant party resource. And when I became chair, that was something that I focus and still focus a lot of time on rebuilding our brand, um, making it a lot more fun, a lot more inclusive, that our rural, suburban and urban Democrats all have a seat at this table. And one of my mantras at our party is that all shades of blue are welcome. So if you're a bright turquoise blue or a kind of moderate navy blue, we still want you in the party. And we believe that all of those ideas together actually make a stronger party and stronger policies. So we provide candidates with things like a voter file, which sounds so simple, but there's a lot of data and work that goes into the voter file, adding mm-hmm. phone numbers and emails and information about voters that you know we've been building up now since the early 2000s. So candidates who have access to the voter file, they can essentially start to determine you know, if I kind of look at these different codes, I can see who might be a good volunteer or and I can go start recruiting those volunteers or who might be a good donor. Um, so the party is really kind of the overall infrastructure for candidates and we are all independent. So there are 57 state parties um, all across the country and the territories. And then we're part of the big family of the Democratic National Committee and state parties and our Democratic National Committee men and women make up the DNC as well. So it's a very, if you really, it is a very kind of like grassroots up model, although there is a ton of work still to do to make the DNC and to make the state party a lot more accessible, a lot more representative. You know, the DNC and the state party have very clear rules about 
uh, gender balance, but we don't have very clear rules about regional balance or rural versus urban balance. And so that's something that our state party is actively working on as well as the national party needs to do much better on. They haven't really admitted that that's a problem yet. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of um, the structure of how unions work as well, yeah. that, that you have the people local and then state and then national and they work together and sometimes the money comes this way and sometimes it goes that way. But um, I think a lot of people don't have experience with unions anymore like generations yeah. past. Mm -hmm. So it gave me something to build on when I was learning more about the party. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think sometimes people believe that the party has control over um, every word that comes out of a candidate's mouth or, you know, or we can tell a candidate, we can call them up and say, do this or do that. And it's just not how that works. I mean, there's clearly a two-way street that happens with candidates in, in the party and our county parties. Like, I don't want to leave them out. They are a huge piece of the party structure. Um, but it's a lot, especially in the Democratic Party. I think it is very different in the Republican Party, right? Like they are very much more rigid. Republicans are pretty monolithic, right? Like the Democratic Party, my friend Jim Hightower down in Texas, he always says that the Democratic Party is like herding cats. Mm -hmm. But the difference is that all of us have to be the can opener, right? You have to be the one that like brings people together. He says a can opener for the Yeah, he said that. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a hard job and like a job a lot of people wouldn't want. What led you to want to be the chair of the Nebraska Democrats versus before that you really have been, um, and I want to talk about this too, but like you were the head of Bold Nebraska and you've been like stopping corporate stooges from dumping oil all over our state. So yeah. what moved you to make that pivot. So it's interesting. So when we, when I first moved to Nebraska, my first job, I was still with the Young Democrats of America. And so we were still, I was still kind of transitioning out of that role and mentoring the new executive director who was coming in um, because we did a lot of changes to YDA before the executive director used to be kind of like a young college kid, but mm -hmm. you know, I was a single mom and um, took that job very serious. And we really transformed the way that YDA also gave money to chapters. It was, so it was this whole big thing. We got young people included in the DNC's delegate plans. I mean, I could go on and on just about YDA. So when I moved to Nebraska, I was still doing YDA. And then a job came open as soon as vice president, uh, Vice President Biden, ah, as soon as Barack Obama uh, became president, and it was to help pass Obamacare, but also to bring all the unions together to pass a policy called the card check. So for two years, I was traveling the state of Nebraska, honestly getting to know the state because I had first, I had just moved here. And also I was in a fairly uncomfortable position where one of my main responsibilities and jobs was to put political pressure on Senator Nelson to get him to vote for Obamacare. And I was new to the state. And so I was already seen as like this rebel outsider who was putting political pressure on 
the head of the Democratic Party and somebody who had won every election he ever, you know, put his name on the ballot for. So that was an interesting experience, but I also became very close to Senator Nelson during that time. And I think it's because this, the national people were looking at Senator Nelson in a very different way that I think Nebraskans looked at Senator Nelson. And I think it's a good lesson for all of us as we kind of do advocacy work. I really started to look at Senator Nelson and started to ask around to people and had lots of conversations with my husband who clearly knew Nebraska way better than me, um, especially in our rural areas. But I was like, why did Senator Nelson get into politics in the first place? Like, what was that driving force? And, you know, for Senator Nelson, a lot of that was truly to help people. Like his motivation really was founded in two things. One, being a Boy Scout, he was very much in the Boy Scout culture and of helping people and giving back to your community and being part of your community. And the other one was, which not many people know, is that Senator Nelson was going to be a priest. And he was very religious and um, really believed that, uh, you know, living your values was a very important part of life. And he wanted to bring that into politics. So we knew those two things. And especially with faith, um, had a lot of uh, faith leaders have individual meetings with Senator Nelson and even small group meetings. That's how I met Pastor Janet Banks in Lincoln. She was one of the individuals who we brought to those meetings. She had a huge impact on Senator Nelson. Honestly, I'm not sure he would have voted for Obamacare if it wasn't for Pastor Banks. And I saw my job as an activist and an advocate not to do the storytelling, but to find people who had those stories to then go tell their story to the elected officials. And I think in my all of my professional career, that's what I've done in everything, whether it was Young Democrats of America, AmeriCorps, I ran an eating disorders foundation, the same facility that I uh, got recovered in. I then went and ran their foundation. It was always about how do you utilize uh, people's stories and kind of what drives them to be better people in mm -hmm. order to give back and change the system? So I think that is um, fascinating about Ben Nelson. I didn't know uh, some of that political behind the scenes around his Obamacare vote. What I have been saying and your story backs up what I've been saying on this podcast the last, like all through this election as we're talking about electing Democrats over Republicans. And I have said this, I'll say this right now to the chair of the Democratic Party in Nebraska, like we don't always agree with what the Democrats are doing yeah. um, here at Seeing Red. And we may have to put pressure on them in ways that Democrats don't like. I, but the difference between a Democrat and a Republican is you can fight them and you might win. Yeah. You can right. fight them and you might win. You cannot fight a Republican. None of our um, federally elected Republicans and most of our state elected Republicans, they never budge. They never budge from their party stance. And that is not a democracy anyone should want to be a part of. Yeah, no, that's right. This one party rule in our state is really bad for democracy. And one party rule is really bad for the mentality of the Republican Party because they think and they govern like they don't have to listen to anybody. And for me, that was like another exclamation point, Keystone XL pipeline fight, which we're still fighting, by the way, 10 years later, you know, the party position in most states is a full-time paid job. In our state, it's unpaid. 
I, so I am a, you know, volunteer chair. And so I still have my full-time job at Bold. We're still fighting that pipeline. But when I first started to engage in that issue, I was literally shocked that no Republican leader, other than Senator Tony Fulton, who was with us for a little bit, but no Republican leader essentially stood up and said, we're not going to let a foreign oil corporation come and take farmers and ranchers land because they want to get a foreign oil pipeline using foreign steel down to the export market and to essentially refine oil in a refinery owned by Saudi Arabia. Like, excuse me, what? Republicans are going to support that? And they do. They still do. They like, you know, use it as another wedge issue to wedge environmentalists and Democrats against unions because unions, of course, will get good paying jobs in the fossil fuel industry. Of course they do. They have for decades, but it's never been about the jobs, right? It's always been about Republicans are in bed with big corporations. And I like when activists challenge us. I can't always be at the place that activists and advocates want the Democratic Party to be because I am constantly juggling two things always in that talking to voters and making sure that we are responding to voters and where voters are at and the issues that they deeply care about and making sure that we're winning elections. So some chairs only do the winning elections part. They only see their job as winning elections. And for me, I see it as both because you can't reform the brand and you can't bring new people into the party without responding to the issues that voters care about. Yes, yes to all of that. <laughs> Stephanie, what are you mm -hmm. thinking right now? Jane is saying a lot of things to us. Thought take from you. So, um, You've had several fantastic accomplishments, but of all the work you've done, both um, in your activist role and even personally, what accomplishment are you most proud of? Uh, I mean, definitely recovering. Like it was the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. It took eight years of my life to do. Um, and I saw, <clears throat> my family go through hell right alongside me. And I think that was probably the most difficult thing. And I'm sure anybody that struggled with a mental health issue or addiction, either with themselves or a family member knows how difficult it is. And the person doesn't want to be in that place um, and how hard it is to kind of dig out of that hole. So there's no question, no matter even, you know, obviously I, as a mom, a lot of moms would say, obviously our kids, but there's no way I could have been a healthy mom if I hadn't recovered. And there's mm -hmm. no way I could be running, you know, a political party without having been recovered. And so by far, that is definitely the proudest thing that I've ever done. And I think that's probably true of my family were to, you know, if you were to ask that question to my family, they would say the same thing. <laughs> I think that's a really empowering message, especially to girls and women that it's okay to put yourself first mm -hmm. because you can't, you just literally can't put anyone else first. If you haven't put yourself first, you know, the old adage, you have to put on your own mask first. It's you. And we're just constantly asked to put everything before us. And if we put ourselves first, it, you know, there's this whole, there's a whole thing about, um, you're selfish, mm -hmm. you're power hungry, you're whatever it is you are, but, but you only get the one life. And if mm -hmm. you're not first at some pretty serious levels, you can't help anyone do anything. Yeah. 
hundred percent, which is why I also tell women like it is okay. And you should, if that, you know, now there's a name for it. Obviously growing up, there wasn't a name for it. Self-care, like, you know, that's a new thing, like that mm-hmm. name, but you know, whether it's getting your nails done or getting a facial once a month, whatever it is for you, cause it's different for every woman. Um, I think it's so critical. Politics is hard work because especially if you're a candidate or a political leader that's in the newspapers a lot, you get criticized a lot. That comes with mm-hmm. the territory. So you can't whine about that, right? Like if you're in politics and you're getting criticized, you can't uh, wallow in that. You sometimes have to absorb it and take it and push back when needed, but also listen and just realize that maybe you were wrong in a certain case or maybe people don't realize all the facts, but you need to move on to something else because you can't stay stuck in that moment. But even now in the busiest times, I still take time to go, you know, it's it's a weird thing maybe for self-care, but I love getting my tarot cards read. So, you know, like, there you go. I go get tarot cards read. So I am like big into, you know, healing and, you know, higher powers. And so, mm-hmm. you know, do whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes you happy and smile. If it's a walk, if it's literally having only five minutes to yourself in the bathroom because our kids are constantly coming at us for everything whatever it is like you are a stronger leader when you do that well i have to interject oh (laughs) the nerdy librarian has something to say yes Um, i am reading a fantastic book that fits right in with that it's called the body is not an apology um and it is amazing it Mm. is amazing and it's that's her whole premise is that this, that radical self-love is the key to changing the world. And I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Melody did not respond to me, but I texted her Wednesday and I said, stop whatever you're doing and buy this book. I put it <laughs> I can on only my, assume she followed directions. I did. I put it on my waiting list on my Libby app for my local public library, which I love. Oh, this is mm-hmm. one you gotta buy. I'm like marking it up. I, I never buy books. I'm also going to interject real quick. I'm going to interject real quick and I'm going to say I found the nerdy librarian sitting in her car by herself the other day because she just needed five minutes. And so take take (laughs) your time. She said, what are you doing? And I'm like, doesn't every mom sit in their car for a little while? Uh, yes. <laughs> sometimes I like need to decompress because I'm on the road a lot, right? So sometimes mm-hmm. I just need to decompress before I walk in the house. So I will sometimes pretend I'm on the phone so my kids don't come <laughs> rushing to the car just so I can have five minutes before I go into the house. <laughs> yep. I park around the block. And just talk on my phone. Mm-hmm. I'll just call my sister and we'll just talk for whatever. Because if they mm-hmm. see me, they just come out. Well, I was yeah. going to say, what, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. I don't want anyone to like call anybody out. But I will say one thing that I've had to do really since 2016 and my feminism and my sense of like safety as a woman mm-hmm. and my duty to the women of the world, as I'm raising two sons, I really had to take a look at things in my own house and raise the standard and say like, husband, you are capable. You are capable. I don't have to ask you to take out the trash. 
you can do it without me asking. And we need to really upend some of these systems and make sure that we are setting good examples for our sons and that I don't have to take on everything in our house. I, I just refused to do it. I'm not doing it anymore. And he was already pretty good, you know? I mean, I wouldn't have married him if he wasn't great. So he was already great, but it was like, but now I don't feel safe um, as a woman in the world because we have elected the biggest misogyny I've ever even heard of. Mm-hmm. And so you have to do more as a man. You just have to now. Yeah. Because I have to, as a woman, like live under this constant fear of, and like see babies being ripped apart from their parents at the border. Like as a woman, I just feel like I've had to take on more. So I've had to make my spouse take on more. And that has been some self-care. Because sometimes if I go home, if I go get a petty and I come home and my house is just as gross as when I left it, <laughs> all it did was add more work to my day. <laughs> yeah. About a year ago, um, like, because when I would come back from, you know, some of these work trips, sometimes the house would be chaotic. So about a year ago, I sat the entire family down, not just Scott, but, you know, my core was still at home. And I was like, we got to change some things because this is not healthy, right? When I come home, I then see a mess and then I get upset and then I'm cleaning at 11 o'clock. Like (laughs) that's not good for anybody. So we all need to be able to pick things up. And they have been like, when they realized how much that like impacted me, because I like, I like an orderly house, um, you know, Mm -hmm. that, you know, and not everybody does, right? Some people are totally fine with like dirty laundry on whatever, but I am not. So I think it's important for women. And I see, I do see some of my female friends whose husbands don't pull their weight. And it's just, it's just not fair. Like it is like, it's also like a fundamental issue of fairness in the household of we all, you know, we're most well, all of our homes are probably, you know, like two people houses, right? Like none of us are rich. And so it takes like multiple incomes to make things work for our family. So if I was working all the time and then had to cook, clean, you know, go grocery shopping and everything else, no, sorry. Nope. These responsibilities are being divided in half. Yes. Scott doesn't do the girl's hair like I would do, but we give him, you know, there's give and take. (laughs) Jane, I have a question. Um, Speaking of being up at 11 o'clock at night, besides the presidential election, which we've all been, I feel like when the November election happened in 2016 and there was a, I mean, this is when the Women's March started, right? Because there was a raw, at the core, every woman felt it that something was cosmically broken. We all, you know, and this is not to like leave out men, um, non-binary, like, but it was a predominantly woman felt at our core. Um, We just felt shattered Mm -hmm. and we all got really organized. So um, as we're hopefully wrapping up what we saw as women who really got busy, like women in Texas, they're probably turning that state blue. Like, you know, my aunt is one of them and um, she's moved her way all the way up into the party down in uh, Kingwood, Texas. And what, so besides the presidential election, which we know is keeping up everyone, what keeps you up at night? What are you worried about specifically um, Nebraska level? 
Well, I mean, that's easy for me. It's the pipeline. I mean, I know every single one of those farmers and ranchers along Mm -hmm. the route that are still fighting, you know, 10 years later and are right now in imminent domain court trying to keep TransCanada from taking their property or the tribes that, you know, I've gotten to know very closely over the years that they're literally their sacred land and water is, is at threat. And, you know, it's not just the White House. That is the critical, you know, permit grantor, if you will. Uh, you know, President Trump has granted it. President, I was about to say President Biden again. <laughs> Vice President Biden has said that he, you know, uh, will reject the permit. But there's all these other local decisions that are made. And it really brought home to me fighting Keystone XL, how important the county boards are because mm-hmm. they do all the zoning, right? They can keep out, they can zone out fossil fuels and they can zone in clean energy. And they can make sure that actually farmers and ranchers or landowners, tribes are actually at the table deciding where those energy projects should be. Like, oh my God, wind, maybe you shouldn't come in and tell a small town that you're gonna put 300 wind turbines in somebody's backyard. (laughs) Maybe you should actually have them at the table. Just like, you know, we would have probably said a hundred years ago if all of us were around then uh, for coal plants and pipelines. So, you know, that is definitely what keeps me up at night because I'm so, emotionally invested and tied to that particular project. And I know the White House decision is invested in that. I know sending the first two women in 2020, the fact that we haven't sent women from CD1 or CD2 to Congress to represent our state is disgusting. And we've only sent one other woman to the House of Representatives, Virginia Smith, back in the day. Like, come on now, the NCD3. Like, that also keeps me up at night. That we don't have women representing us in higher levels of office drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. Amen. I mean, we do have Deb Fisher uh, <laughs> votes against us every single day. She votes against our health care. She votes against our abortion access. She votes against our public safety. Education. She does everything. I mean, she's just like a Phyllis Sheffley um, protege. Yeah. Uh, not She's not as good as that woman was. I mean, that woman was really politically savvy. Deb Fisher just kind of fell into the right moment in the party and just sailed it on by and you know p.s she brought a rapist into the um supreme court so yeah you know like she's not good for women not all women are good for women no Mm -hmm. and she says she's a rancher and then turns her back on ranchers any moment that she can uh all for big corporate ag which in our state we are still made up of small family farmers and ranchers but you wouldn't know that with deb fisher's voting record really Stephanie, thoughts? Uh, I think we have a question that was submitted by one of your fans, Jane. (laughs) Who you may have got to see earlier today. She was thrilled about her pumpkin. Uh, Shelby would like to know, (laughs) when can Jane and I go swimming? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... That is a good question. Um, And as anybody who knows me knows that I love the water. Um, I really love ocean water and the feel of that air. So Mm -hmm. yeah, please tell me when can we? Like that is a good question. (laughs) Like right back at you, little fairy. Um, Thank you to Shelby for that user, (laughs) listener, uh, submitted question. She doesn't listen. (laughs) 
Um, so Jane, I have a question for you. Um, one, I have a couple, I guess. One, what is your favorite candy? Ah, uh, I really love chuckles. You know, those like sugared gel things that come like five in a little kind of sleeve. They're amazing. So, but I love anything chocolate too. So I'll really take any candy. There's not a candy that I don't like. So I, am I the only one that doesn't know what a chuckle is? No, I have no <laughs> idea. I'm not, I'm not a, <laughs> is this like a Florida candy? Do they have no, them in Nebraska? So. First of all, yes, they do have them in Nebraska. Cause Scott, when he goes to the grocery store, sometimes buys them for me. Are they Aww. called Chucky's chuckles? A chuckle? Maybe they're called Chuckies. Anyway. No, they're called Chuckles. They're just this, like, they look like fruits. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. They're like fruit slices, but they have this kind of weird, like, maybe like hay bale shape. But they're like in, yep, yep. And they're like jelly, like, like gelled. Um, They're really delicious and I love them. And even if I'm really, really full, I will still eat the whole sleeve. No problem. Oh, I see what these are. I have never seen these. I'm looking them up. But I do know the fruit gels, those sun-kissed fruit gems. Those yes. are delicious. Love those too. Love those too. And the, I will say that it's funny because Stephanie, you were like, is that a Florida candy? Like the fruit candies, those are very popular in Florida. You know, like the coconut flavored ones. And yeah. And then we dip them in chocolate. Yeah. So <laughs> Stephanie's face. Um, okay. So out in Hastings. What are, or actually, you know, you run the whole like shebang of the state or you run two statewide or, well, I guess bold is regional, but I'm going to limit it to Nebraska. Yeah. What are your top three businesses? And you can either pick locally to where you live or local as in being the state of Nebraska. And I'm going to also say rural because that's your whole thing. That is my thing. Um, what are the three businesses you love giving your money to? Yeah. So I give a lot of money to Avani, which is the yoga studio and all the Jane's self-care place. Uh, But they also sell really cool yoga clothes and yoga mats and all this kind of like locally made good stuff. Um, They also sell pacha soap, you know, pacha soap. I mentioned Kool-Aid and Eileen's candy, but pacha soap was also created and invented Mm -hmm. in Hastings. Uh, They are now sold, you know, worldwide. It's all sorts of good stuff. So I'll put their thing in our show notes. Yeah. Pacha soap, P-A-C-H-A. Started by two college kids in Hastings College, uh, and they employ over 300 people now in Hastings. Um, it, and they do soaps, body scrubs. They're actually getting into essential oils, mm-hmm. all sorts of good stuff. You know, the, the beautiful soap at, at Whole Foods is Pacha Soap. Yes. it's a, Yeah, yeah. Whole Foods is one of their biggest uh, mm-hmm. buyers. Oh, yeah. I've seen that soap. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I definitely buy a lot of my clothes in Omaha and in Lincoln at different little boutiques. So, you know, I always say the name wrong, but it's, they have cranes in their logo, Tusaru. I think that's right. Um, and then we have a place in, you know, Hastings that I go to a lot. Um, but, you know, I think that when you say like you're, where do you spend a lot of your money? Ugh, like 
on my boots, <laughs> the sandheld boots well, guy. Up in the sandheld. You know, just places you love to spend, like right by my house, there's this little bakery called Goldenrod Bakery. Oh, I love Goldenrod. They're fabulous. They're just right around the corner. And I love to spend my money there. They don't get a lot of my money because, you know, we don't buy that many bakery goods, but I love it when I spend my money there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, every Friday I go to Blue Moon uh, in Hastings. So people have started to realize I do this. So like the local Democrats know that I'm usually at Blue Moon on Fridays um, doing work from there because I just need to get a break. Or when I was writing Harvest the Vote, I would spend a lot of time at Blue Moon writing the book. And they have this amazing celestial pesto sandwich. But in Hastings, so. I love my town, if you can't tell. You know, we have two microbreweries. We have First Street Brewing, uh, which is absolutely amazing. Then we have Steeple Brewing. Uh, we have a, like two locally made restaurants. Like they use a bunch of locally food restaurants, Odyssey and Back Alley Bakery. So, you know, there's lots to do in Hastings, mm-hmm. which I'm sad that on a Sunday you went there years ago and all that stuff is closed. And none of that even was there back then, but. Well, that's okay. Well, I mean, we'll come back to Hastings. You know. Yeah. We actually, it keeps being on the bucket list to do the full um, Kool-Aid days. And actually now that yes. you're old enough that we really, this summer, if it's not, you know, still actively a pandemic and out of control pandemic, uh, you yeah. know, maybe we'll, have, maybe we'll have some new leadership, actual leadership and maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That actually cares about our health and doesn't do now a limo drive-by, uh, which is what President Trump did today. He just left the hospital to do a drive-by with, what, the 20 people that they probably are paying to be outside. So, like, I can't even fathom. He's not a leader. He's a, like, narcissistic WWE reality Trump president. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Also, like, just at a human level... The limo driver, the secret service yes. officers, like he's putting them and all of their families at risk for no good reason. Yeah. It's just no good reason. Trump should be able to run on his record. It should be solid enough. A limo drive-by should not be like a make or break election move at this yeah. point. And yeah. I've never been hospitalized where I could just like be hospitalized <clears throat> and then leave and then be <laughs> re-hospitalized, you know? It's not a thing. Yeah. But it is for Trump because he doesn't care about anybody else. So therefore, he doesn't follow rules. And I think some voters have seen that as like breakthrough and revolutionary. You know, he doesn't go by any norms. No, that is a very bad thing. We have norms and rules for a reason when you are the head of one of the strongest nations in the world. Uh, I cannot wait and hope that Election Day sees a big shade of blue across the United States and that I can play like Dolly Parton, although the Whalen Jennies do a good version of this as well. Uh, the clear blue morning song. Like mm-hmm. I cannot wait to play that loud everywhere I go. I'm just going to think, put it on my iPhone and just play it. Walking through Russ's grocery store, walking through blue moon. Like our country needs like this healing, um, mm-hmm. with this like chaos and hatred and anger that we've been through for the past three and a half years. It's been awful. And you know, I'll just say like going back to this um, women and feminism, like one of the things that makes women really strong is that we are able to be weak and bend as we need to. And that is actually our strength. 
And this president has done everything, including catch an incredibly contagious pandemic contagion, um, go go in front of all these people. He's infected almost his entire party, um, maybe even has infected the daughter of a man invited to the presidential debate whose dad died of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, because his entire platform is built around never, ever showing weakness in that if you, he went after, um, you know, and I was thinking about this when you were talking about your addiction, Jane, and you were talking about how hard it is to fight that and how hard it is for your family to help you. And, you know, our, and you are so powerful. You are so strong. You are incredibly influential because you went through hard things and you were strong enough to be weak when you needed to. Mm -hmm. And for the president of the United States to go after a man um, because his son had an addiction and to put that as like some sort of um, tabloid fodder. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's so fundamentally broken. And I think when in 2016, when this election happened, we all, as the women, we've just felt it. Mm -hmm. We felt that moment on the debate stage. We already knew this was all coming. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't know the details, but we knew. We knew it would be as bad as it has been. And it has been just as bad as I think we mm -hmm. all um, raged and thought it would be. Yeah, there's just no question. Yeah, when Trump was like lurking behind Secretary Clinton's shoulder, we all knew what type of person he was, that he- all met his bar doesn't, yeah, exactly, doesn't care about anybody. And then it obviously extends to almost the entire Republican party. Sure, mm -hmm. there are glimmers of hope in John McAllister or Al Davis out in the Sandhills, but that is not our elected officials. Governor Ricketts, Bacon, Fortenberry, Adrian Smith, they are all lockstep with Trump and will do anything and everything that Donald Trump says. And I'm sorry, but that is a sad, sad state of a party. But that's and, not democracy. I mean, it's like, and I love when the Republicans try to put the mirror up to us, right? Their, their reflection, they're trying to like put onto us and they call us a dumpster fire. And I'm like, excuse me, what? Like, have you seen what's happening at the White House? And have you seen the economy? The fact that many parents are having to homeschool their kids while working full time from home. Everybody's living and working from home. Like, because we had failed leadership. Not because of anything else. Failed leadership. That's it. Yep. It's a problem. Um, April, do you have anything else you want to add? Um, yeah, I just thought maybe wrap up, you know, talking a little bit about election. How do I word this? Maybe what is the most exciting potential you're seeing in Nebraska right now? Because yeah. I think we're all hoping for something. <laughs> Let me first say a boring thing, which is infrastructure wise in 2020, we are kind of leaps and bounds where we were in 2018. Mm -hmm. So in 2018, the Eastman campaign was kind of working on their own. The NDP was working on our own. Like there was no, even though we attempted, right, there was no strong coordination between the national party, the state party, and one of the most significant federal campaigns that we had. Uh, in 2020, that's all completely different. The Eastman teams working hand in hand with the state party. We're working hand in hand with the Bulls team. 
with our writing candidate, Preston Love for the US Senate, and of course the Biden and Harris campaign, we're all one team working together and coordinating GOTV, mail, uh, voter registration. So that is, it may sound, I think maybe like a small thing for folks, but because we all weren't working together, we weren't pulling out as many voters as we could because we were all kind of, you know, on our own path. So that's very different this year. And I think that that's gonna be significant. But what I see that I don't think anybody at the national level yet sees is what's happening in CD1. And that's mostly driven, I think, by Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln has continued to punch above their weight when it comes to electing Democrats, whether it's the Democratic mayor with Mary, Mayor Lirian, or essentially sweeping all of the city council races, county commission races, and all the other races uh, at the city level for treasurer, et cetera. So there is something happening in Lincoln where, yes, the Republicans still technically have more registered voters, but Democrats and enlightened Republicans, as Senator Nelson calls them, are really teaming up together to form a government that is way more compassionate and I think lives people's values. And then you have all these small kind of rural towns around Lincoln that make up CD1 that I think people forget that, you know, these are like white immigrant communities that were Polish, Czech, Irish, et cetera, who still have this like very deep tradition of taking care of each other, mm -hmm. being a neighbor to each other. They think Trump is an arrogant SOB who doesn't care about them and who thinks that they're less than, mm -hmm. um, and they don't like big corporations, right? They don't like big corporations that come into their small towns or they want to be able to fix their own tractor but can't because John Deere has this nonsense law that would you know, void out their warranty. So you could really, that's what I'm like, we're trying to convince National and maybe we will uh, in the next couple of days, fingers crossed. But CD1, you could see CD1 going for Biden as an electoral vote and capables literally sending shockwaves, not only across our state, but across the country. I see that happening. And I definitely see all the signs there. I don't know if I see the electoral vote, but I really, I think if anyone's got a chance, it's capables. That's right. 100%. While we are sitting here tonight, a Republican friend who lives in rural CD1 just messaged me about how excited her family is to vote for her. And they are- yeah diehard Republicans. Yep. And, and I was talking to a friend tonight about how I think the Republicans in and around Lincoln are different than the Republicans in Omaha. I think that they are people that yes. value their schools and they value people having a basic standard of living and they are done with uh, sacrificing some people so that other people can have more. And yep. I think that, that we are seeing that. And I'm anyway. 100%. I'm very and we, we all, and we do have a lot of diversity in CD1. I think people mm -hmm. see Nebraska as very white and it's just like, uh, have you looked at the census data mm -hmm. even from 2010? And it's going to look very different in mm -hmm. 2020 when they release those numbers. Mm -hmm. We have a beautiful diversity of folks. Now, do our small towns treat them as good as they should right now? And does Lincoln and Omaha yet? No. Um, but I see a lot of changes even in Hastings. And I think that's also like the human element of it all where uh, you know, meatpacking is obviously a very big deal in our rural communities. And so our kids are now playing together, growing up together, playing soccer together, going to cooking class together, which means then we as families are talking together on the sidelines of their soccer games. So I see just 
I have so much hope for Nebraska mm -hmm. because of all the beautiful things and creative things that I see happening in Lincoln and Omaha. And then our rural communities literally changing year by year. So I love our state. Like I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Not only do we have cranes, we may not have beaches, but we have all these beautiful lakes and we have all this, you know, farmers who deeply care about the land. And then we have people like you guys, you know, who make this state better and who knew that a pod did not exist to talk about politics and activism. And here you go. That is the great thing about Nebraska. Okay, Jane, our final question for you tonight. What would you say to people who are new to doing the work, uh, getting involved in making change at the grassroots level? For me, the kind of mantra that I live by, of course, other than Frank's words, which I carry with me all the time for pod folks who may not know Frank Lemire, we lost him a year ago, a longtime democratic activist, Native American leader who stopped White Clay, mm -hmm. who helped us stop Keystone, was the longest serving Native American at the DNC. Um, he, you know, he would always tell us that, you know, you're not really making change unless you make others feel uncomfortable. Um, and you have to make yourself uncomfortable. And he would always remind everybody that, you know, your worth is not because of a degree, but because more of the road dust <laughs> that you collect mm -hmm. on your car, which means that you're traveling and you're out with people. Um, so I live by those for sure. And then the other one that I live by is that those closest to the pain should be closest to the solutions. And that is for everything whether it's women having access to legal abortions, um, whether that is black and brown communities uh, deciding what our police force should look like, um, whether that is farmers and ranchers who are being threatened by either big corporate ag or you know, awful fossil fuel pipelines. Those folks that know the pain directly, they are always, always, always going to have the best solutions. Always. I don't care if you have a PhD, if you have never touched foot on the soil of the Sandhills, you don't know what it means in the deep spiritual connection that people have with connecting that land. So I think that that is a lesson that anybody in activism or politics has to have, is that closest to the pain have to be closest to the solutions. I love that. Me too. Well, Jane, thank you so much for coming on the pod tonight. Thank you. We are so grateful. And we will be watching and we'll be seeing what happens in November. Keep up the good work. Thanks, ladies. Thanks Keep doing what you're doing. See you guys. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.